Digital marketing seems to be the mystery that most entrepreneurs struggle with, and real estate investors are no exception. The truth is, there are multiple avenues to success. Those experiences will be best shared by the guests on this podcast. My name is Jason Wright, and I would like to welcome you to Real Estate Investor Marketing Stories. What is going on, Jason Wright here, coming to you with episode number 19 of this podcast. And today I've got an awesome guest with me. I think you'll enjoy the show. The guest has a ton of experience as a real estate investor. But before we jump into that, my random thoughts. And the random thoughts this week actually correlate with the guest today for a change. Generally, they're just purely random, but there's a little bit of a tie-in today. So what I want to talk about and I'll relate this to you very quickly, but I've been in this particular business in October to be eight years. So I think about all the friends, all the people I've seen come and disappear as entrepreneurs. So today I want to talk about why most don't make it as entrepreneurs. As you know, if you're trying to raise money and you're trying to be an active capital raiser, that's a form of entrepreneurship as well. So my lessons will tie into the same things that you may be saying and you may have seen and you uh, potentially will see as well. Now, let's say the first reason people don't make it as entrepreneurs, it's hard. Like it's the hardest thing you'll ever do because when things go sideways, guess what? It's your fault. There's nobody to help you bail out of it. And a lot of people um, kind of shudder and run at, at the sign of the first big challenge. But the big things that stand out to me as I look back on my journey is most people just aren't consistent. Right. It's like January 1st every year, people go to the gym, they work out for four to six weeks and get pissed off because they don't look like they've been working out for a year. Good things don't happen overnight. Good cigars aren't uh, aged in a day. Good wine and good bourbons are not aged in a day either. So good things take time for sure. Kind of going along with not consistent is just giving up too soon. The amount of people that I've seen give up in less than six months is staggering. There's a reason why. I don't know the exact percent, but it's like 95% are gone in five years or less. There's a real good reason. And in my opinion, consistent efforts really had reason. They could run out of money as well, running out of money or time. So those are some other things. Another big weakness I see is people don't spend the time to build real relationships with their clients or with their investors, right? Obviously, if you're selling, uh, you know what, even if you're selling physical products in an e-com store, which I know doesn't really relate to this audience, but you still have the ability to build a relationship with those clients. You're probably not going to go hang out with them because they're all over the world. But as an investor or as a service-based service, high-ticket service provider like me, both of us realize the importance of building real relationships with your clients or with your stakeholders. So the people that do that have more success because those relationships attract new relationships and they come back time and time again. So it's a beautiful thing. And then the, the final thing that I'll share today as far as my thought, and I heard this advice a long time ago, and I needed to hear it when I heard it because it was uh, speaking to me, but it's don't be so married to your ideas or your original path that you don't pivot even when there's a great opportunity to be, to be had. So don't be scared to pivot when it makes sense. In this business that you're in, markets change, your interests change, things change. So you may start in short-term rentals, and you may pivot to multifamily or vice versa. So my advice is don't be scared to pivot when it makes sense. All right, enough of my random thoughts. Today, my guest is Mark Schuler. Mark's a good guy. 
He is the principal of SGRE Investments. This man has 30 plus years of experience in the game as an architect, property manager, owner, and real estate advisor. The reason I shared what I did on the intro today is because he has in excess of $500 million in assets under management. If Mark were able to talk right now, he would let you know it did not happen overnight. Anyway, we had a great conversation. Let's check it out now. Hey, Mark, welcome to the show. Uh, thanks for having me. Yeah, no problem at all. I'd love to hear your story, how you kind of got started on this road with real estate investing. Well, yeah, a long time ago, far, far away in a galaxy. In all seriousness, I've been a practicing architect for 40 years now. And so I've always been affiliated one way or another with the real estate sector. I'm also just a, to my core, entrepreneur. You know, I just came out of college and was just depressed because I was like, oh man, I got to go to work for somebody else. I can't do that. And so, you know, got my architecture degree back in 1985 and architects have to go through an internship period. And so I spent five to seven years banging around, working in different offices, you know, owning my skill sets. And then uh, you sit for your exam and the architecture exam is a brutal exam. I mean, it's a it's over four days. You sit for 48 hours of testing in four days. Wow. I know, pretty brutal. And the last, back when I took it, dating myself here, this was back in my hand drafting days. You sat down and designed a building, soup to nuts in 12 hours. You designed it, you drew it, you annotated it, and you handed it in. So, you know, you're just mentally exhausted after this exercise. You know, passed my exams, practice quick as I could. I hung my own shingle up. I just was not going to work for somebody else. No. So did that for first practice for seven years, probably did uh, close to 125 custom homes in that seven year period. I live in Seattle. So this is kind of in the mid nineties when Microsoft's ascendant and they're creating all these overnight gazillionaires on stock options, you know? So everybody's like, bunch of cash in their pocket, burn it a hole, and they want a trophy home. So I did a lot of trophy homes for, uh, you know, entitled white people. Put a can on. And, you know, I got tired of that. Did four houses, big, big trophy homes for senior vice presidents at Microsoft. And, you know, that wasn't a pleasant experience. Yeah, I have a few others in there, really high net worth individuals. But anyways, long and short of it is, I got a lot of exposure along the way not only just the development process for, you know, housing. I also, prior to that, worked with an apartment guy, and, you know, for a couple of years, and we did a lot of big apartment blocks here in the city. You know, I'd take my wife downtown three times a week, and we'd drive by one of my big projects that I did in the early 90s. Mm -hmm. You know, it's a 200-unit apartment building with two levels of underground parking for 200 cars or 200 maybe 300 cars, big, big underground parking lot. It's 400 feet long, you know? So got to interact with developers on that project and a couple of others. Anyways, piqued my curiosity. And after I left my first practice, one of the first things I did is I went to the University of Washington's business school and got an advanced degree at real estate. Nice. And then uh, along that, you know, about that same time, I started my second practice and you know, doing that forever, you know, got really, really interested in real estate. 
And finally, about 2012, I think, it took me 10 years, but I took the plunge and started really doing deals. Mm-hmm. So what I like is not the ground up development, but I like value add. And so I have done a lot of value add projects. I mean, I currently own, or a general partner at 4,000 units down in Houston and Oklahoma City. Yeah. And every one of them is a heavy lift. So, and the model for that is um, we're buying assets at well below the replacement cost. And then generally spending about 18,000 a door and moving rents anywhere from 20 to 30%, creating a lot of value, a lot of equity in that asset. We'll then refi it after a couple of years, do a cash out event to our investors. And then somewhere between year three and five, we'll execute a sale, go full cycle and line up a 1031 there for all of our investors to roll into. So I like that business model, um, very operationally intense, but there's a lot less risk involved than uh, Roundup. And even all throughout the pandemic, we never, never lost money. Nice. A lot of people cannot say that. So yeah, <laughs> yeah. Don't kid yourself. I mean, it's gut wrenching. There's a lot of moving parts. We have 125 people on the payroll now. Wow. It is operationally intense. It's very, very complicated. To keep all those parts moving in a unified direction. Yep. But with the people with specialized tasks within our organization now, it's just, you know, it's getting easier. And at the same time, it's getting more difficult because we're chasing bigger and bigger deals. Yep. Makes sense. So what asset classes and or markets do you typically focus on? Or is that what you just told me about a little bit? Well, let me flesh that out a little bit. We like B and C class apartments. We're yep. apartment guys. Yeah. All we do. I don't need to get involved in home parts and self-storage and tilt up warehouses and all that stuff. I mean, I could, yeah. I still want to. Yep. I mean, I've got a you know, really refined business model going on now mm-hmm. and it is firing on all cylinders. And so I find that a lot of private equity firms, you know, I was talking to my nephew yesterday and he's talking to me about a private equity firm in Portland, Oregon, you know, and they're doing a little of this, a little of that, you know, three or four, five different things, yeah. you know, and it's like, you can't master all of that. Can't, nope. And so our business models stay very tightly focused. Yep. Hyper-focused on what we're doing. And uh, so we stick with apartments and we stick within very few markets. So we're in the Houston market big time. We're based there. And Houston's the third or fourth largest city in the country and second largest apartment market. Yep. I don't need to chase yield all around the country. No, and I, I totally resonate with that because like with this business of mine, we started off super broad with digital marketing. There's a million directions you can go. Right. But I had this realization that like, man, we're, you know, an A or B in one area, but everything else for like C minus or worse, and we're just too broad. So now it's so narrow. We do the same thing every week, but we get so good at it. We understand yeah. that so well. We know what clients want and need to think about. It's the same thing you're talking about. Yeah. And uh, there's comfort in that, right? You can't. Yeah a boringly predictable machine of a business that runs very well. So. Exactly right. That's the Jack Welch school of management right there. Yep. yep. And he was GE, is that right? GE. And he, yeah. when he took over as CEO of GE, it's like anything we're not number one and two in, we're going to jettison. Yep. Now, he made a lot of mistakes along the way. Yep. But that philosophy always resonated. 
Yep. And there's a lot of people I talk to that are rookies in this real estate investment game. I mean, they know less than I do, which is scary, right? And they yeah. want to get into everything. They're agnostic with asset class and market. They're just all over the place. And I'm like, ah, do you really have any idea what you're getting into or what you're talking about? <laughs> exactly. I'm sure so you- look, you know, in my case, Jason, to that point, I wrote my essay to architecture school in 1984, mm-hmm. almost 40 years ago. Maybe I'm too boringly predictable, but I wrote my essay about affordable housing. There you go. And, you know, I always wanted to be a workforce housing developer. Yep. Turns out. And here I am 40 years later doing what I always wanted to do. And like, I don't know why anybody would want to do this, but this, that's what I always found really interesting. Yeah. And I have designed thousands of units of condominiums and apartments along the way. It is a product type I am intimately familiar with. I've gotten really good at now, you know, getting really good at the operations side of it. You don't have to like flit around chasing you. And so to your point, pick your lane and stick with it. Yep. And that's what I choose to do. And you know, it's boringly predictable, but my investors love me. We pay an eight ref on every deal. It's a 20 IRR and we'll double your money in five years. And, you know, not only that, we have, you know, a tremendous amount of downside protection because we're forcing value. It's a forced appreciation model. So we're forcing the value of the asset north. And even in, look what the hell we've been through in the last 13 years. Yeah. Three, three major economic events. Yeah. And I've always paid dividends. Nice. Very nice. I like it. All right. So when you were getting rolling kind of with your business, what simple marketing strategies and tactics kind of allowed you to attract investors? That's a hard question. That's the question. I I coach some people and that's, that's what they're struggling with. Yeah. And it's a chicken and egg thing. Yep. How do you get, how do you attract investors to you if you don't have any experience? How do you get experience if you don't have the investors in tow to be able to deploy into a deal? Yep. And I don't have a good answer for that. You just bang away. I can tell you how I did it. Yeah. Um, I mean, I figured that out early, that conundrum. And it's like, okay, what do I do? What do I do? I had a couple of things going for me that give me a huge competitive advantage. Well, practicing architect, done yep. a lot of housing. You know? So I parlayed that as my superpower in my marketing efforts. Yep. Not only to attract investors, but what I did is I found a deal, I tied it up, and then I found, I went out and found a good sponsor who sponsored me and I gave him two thirds of the deal. Yeah. But that allowed me to get not my first, but my first two deals under my belt. And from there, I just took off. Yeah. So, you know, it's a lot easier to raise money when you're an operator than it is just to be a capital raiser. Yep. Got it. Very interesting. What, what would you consider your biggest mistake or maybe your biggest regret in terms of your marketing so far? Just not having enough time to do it. Yeah. You know, I am spread so thin as it is. I'm getting, I mean, we've talked about this. I'm, I'm trying to get more focused on it. Yep. I'm trying to actually retire from architecture and I've got a side hustle deal that's fucking up a lot of my time right now. And hopefully in three or four months, kind of papers down and I'm, I've got more time to kind of focus on my marketing, but you know, this business, it's dollars and deals, dollars and deals, and they're both full-time jobs. Yep. They blunt and candid. The dollars are the, the engine for doing the deals. You don't have dollars. You can't do a deal. 
So you got to be on that full time and it has to be, I think like an engineer and everything. So I'm trying to build systems, yeah. you know, come up with methods that'll make this happen. And I'm getting better at that. I'm doing a lot more automation and want to continue doing that. It, it works. I get up every day and I've got a new investor pinging me. Guy pinged me today and we have a conversation scheduled Wednesday. Nice. I'm starting to get a little momentum with it. Very little. Yeah. I want to spend more time fleshing that out. I'll probably spend the balance of this year trying to build that machine. Yep. But it is a machine. Like I said, because I'm an active operator now and have, you know, I've been in 15, 15 syndications I'm a general partner on. Mm-hmm. You know, I've got a track record. It makes it easier for me to promote myself. Mm-hmm. I don't know if you're just starting out, it's a grind. It's just the easiest thing to do. Remain humble. If you can raise five hundred to a million dollars for an operator on a deal, it's a good start. You know, really. Yep. And make sure you vet that sponsor. That's where a lot of capital raisers make a huge mistake. So, yep. because they get a rookie operator who doesn't know what they're doing, and as a capital raiser, you don't have a meat on your bones to understand what you're doing business with. So you'll fling money at anybody who listens to you. Your listeners out there, don't do that. Yep. Do not do that. That is a recipe for disaster. You're going to get caught between a bad operator and your investor database. And I can tell you right now, if you do one bad deal, you'll never do another. But don't do that. I think it's good advice. It's funny. Uh, we have a sister company, Wind River Equity Partners, that my wife and I have started. The amount of people that have come out to me like, hey, help me raise money. And I knew enough about them or did enough research. I'm like, I don't want to work with this person. You know what I mean? No. you got to be very, because like you said, like if I'm putting my name on it, even though I'm new to this space, it better be a phenomenal experience or these investors never talk to me again. And it, right. it makes uh, it makes some other company look bad too. So yeah, I think you have to be, you know, it's good advice in general, but you gotta be careful you go into business with for sure. So. Well, you know, look, it's real estate, right? Number one thing you do in real estate, due diligence. Yeah. You know, and too many people think that it applies only to the asset. Yeah. It doesn't. It applies to every facet of the business, including the people you do business with. Yep. Oh, you know, you should be doing criminal background checks yeah. on these operators. Yeah. And believe me, there are a lot of people trying to cover their tracks out there banging around. Yeah. Wouldn't wouldn't surprise me. All right. Can you share a story about your real estate investor journey that maybe you haven't shared on another podcast or shared publicly before? Could be anything you want to. A lot of times people share something funny, but it could be anything you want to. Yeah, sure. You know, I got a great one. I got a couple of good ones. You know, I've practiced architecture and live in Seattle. I've done three deals here, but, you know, there's a reason why I'm in Texas. Mm-hmm. Is the politics of housing on the West Coast and in uber blue Seattle in particular has made it untenable for me to want to continue doing business here. Yep. So, you know, I bought a 40 unit here about seven years ago. I still own it. And, I mean, it was just a D minus building. It was a deep value add. Roof was gone. The upper level apartments, the, the sheetrock was collapsing into the units, and we were having to get people out of those units because they're unlivable. And you know, but two weeks after I bought that, you know, the the local lefties got all incensed that you know I was going to spend a million and a half bucks renovating this place, and they had the audacity to raise rents. And you know, it's like, well, first of all, rents are seven hundred dollars under market. You know, so, wow. and what these tenants had was a social contract with the previous seller, who was this crazy Cambodian guy who just 
his son would show up once a month. The tenants would shove a check through the office door. They had one of those mail slots. Yeah. Come in with a hoodie on. Nobody could see him. And rush in there, grab the checks, and rush out. And so there was this social contract going on between the tenants and this owner where, you know, you kept rents low and we won't narc on you for repairing anything in the uh, building. You know, while well, new regime, new sheriff of town comes in and wants to fix the place. And, you know, they got all mad. Like this effed up entitlement attitude. Yeah. And I'm pretty, I'm decidedly middle of the road in my politics. I, yeah. I can't afford to be of one opinion and the other because I have investors, right? You know, I can't afford that. So I've got to remain clear headed. But uh, these folks, you know, just came at me. They uh, were protesting. They ended up in front of my house five times. Whoa protesting, marching around the sidewalk, plastering my neighborhood on every phone pole about what a slumlord I was. Ugh. We're trying to get, you know, interviews, and I had the local news media up on my porch, and it's like, fuck you, I'm not going to talk to you. And look, let me uh, see if I can find something here. Oh, I don't, I don't. It, it was just crazy, you know? And so, and what made it worse was city is supposedly sending uh, housing inspectors out to my building. That check for housing violations. So they were literally out there four days a week because these tenants would just like file complaint after complaint after complaint. And then, of course, you know, the city's hiring anybody with a pulse. And so these guys in this housing inspection office, you know, they thought they were the, well, I won't use the analogy, but the biggest swinging thing in the room. And they're getting up in my asset manager's face and just getting right in his face, screaming at him. What are you doing? You know, you're you're hurting the your tenants or some crazy excuse. Like, you know, look, dude, we're renovating a D minus class building, you know, and these folks are like threatening that, hey, Red, they can either live here and, and live through this or they can move on. And eventually, you know, long story short, we we emptied the asset. Wow, it's two buildings, 20 and 20, and we emptied one of them for a year. Cost me well over a hundred grand in that exercise. Yep. I guess the point I'm trying to make is it can be a challenging business and, you know, soft rent control is a thing anywhere you go on the West Coast. And it is looking like it might become a national policy at some point. This is just insane. And I can tell you that I understand the impetus for it. You know, those three economic events I was telling you about, taking housing production offline for about five years of the last 13. Yeah. We are millions and millions of units of housing behind schedule. You can drop a pin anywhere in this country and there's a some 5% vacancy rate. Yeah. A lot of times it's 2 or 3%. And any 5% is equilibrium. So when you get below 5%, rents start rising. And so, you know, the immediate reaction is, you know, the guy like me is a slumlord and I'm just like preying on people. That's not the case. Yeah, so that's the opposite of what you're actually doing. I'm, I'm fixing housing and I'm just a rational actor in a market. I didn't create the marketplace. I sure as hell am not part of a cabal that controls it, but that is in government, yeah. the perception, yeah, especially on the West Coast. No. So for your listenership out there, just be really careful where you choose to do business. I choose to do business in red states yep. for a reason. I get it. <laughs> I hear um, anyways. Great story, though. No, I, I really like that. There's going to be another one. The other extreme... I did a little 14 unit here a couple of years back. Mm -hmm. You know, really profitable deal for me. Renovated all the units, added a unit, worked really hard on it. I was really proud of my efforts on that. 
learned that in from pardon my French, it was a real shithole. I mean, there were hoarders living there, and I mean, it just place was just beat down. Yeah. We went in there and got that thing all renovated, and I was just about done with the renovation. I'd already sold the deal, and so I was contracted to finish up this unit addition. So I spent about six, eight months wrapping that up, and I had a fire inspection on a Friday morning at 9 a.m. So, I mean, I just busted my hump to kind of get this all ready to go, and I don't know if you're, you know what a Knox box is. It's a key box. Yeah. Heavy duty key box. He bolted to the building for the fire department. So I I bolted that to the building Thursday. Friday, I had my fire final. Had all the keys in there. Saturday morning, I had a guy throw accelerant all over his unit and torched it. Oh. Burned it to the ground. Whoa. All right. Grass had to be who, man. And, you know, and he's in the wind. He's got three felony warrants out for his arrest right now. Jeez. You know, and it gets even more... It's better. It's an older building, and you know those buildings have a corridor on the outside where you go to all the units. Yeah. This fire is right in the middle, and the only way down off that upper level is a stair that's right in the middle. And so the guy at the end unit couldn't get past the fire to the stair. He has to jump out a window from the second story, breaks his leg in three places. Now that owner is getting sued. So don't kid yourself. I mean, there are a lot of risks and challenges in this business. Fortunately, that owner is insured up to the nines. He had every rider that you can think of. Yeah. Ended up rebuilding the place. He was fine, but, you know, and then fended off the lawsuit. But, yeah, it was a year and a half of his life he didn't need to waste. Yeah. No? Yeah, absolutely. It's funny because, like, what you're saying is the truth, right? It's the real story. So that's what we do here. But I hear people say stuff like, yeah, raising capital is the, the best way to legally make a ton of money fast. Like, people have this this idea that it's this overnight success, easy button type thing, but that's just not the reality of it at all. It's not the reality. Yep. Fires and apartment buildings are a thing. Yep. I've had three fires in my in my building, you know. I've had to deal with this three times. And yep. it's always a year long effort to arm wrestle with the insurance company because well, you know they're gonna give you hundred percent of your the value of that loss. You know, you just know that's gonna happen. Oh yeah. And I have a friend, his church burned down. The million dollar loss. They want to hand them two hundred thousand dollars. I mean, this is the reality. Yep. Yep. And if you're not wired to want to grind through this, don't do this business. Yeah. But you know, to your point, that's a perception, but reality is really different. So talking about that a little further, if you talk to somebody today who's brand new, wants to start raising capital, what one piece of marketing advice would you give them? What would you say, hey, start with this and focus on this to help yourself be more successful? It's one of the classic model in the real estate industry. Get yourself a good mentor. Yep. He has really good advice. Yep. Because too many people throw themselves at it like they can figure it out. I got news for you. It's not going to happen. Yeah. Get yourself a good mentor. You'll take 10 years off your learning curve faster. You know, it's just common sense. And what do you think about, we're in March of 2023 now, you know, you're hearing stuff about Silicon Valley Bank and all this stuff going on. Yeah. You think this is a tough year for people to get started in this industry? You think it will be? Yeah, but- you know, what are you going to do? Yeah. And what are you going to wait until next year? Yeah. I mean, you've lost a year, you know, so man up and go get it done. You know, and just, you got to start somewhere. Yep. And so, you know, find a mentor and really start learning the works and, and how it works and kind of, there's classes out there you can take. Yep. Everybody thinks you can just kind of throw yourself at this and they don't understand that, you know, there's a lot of analysis that goes on in this. And if you don't know how to analyze anything, you're not going to go anywhere. Yep. You can't analyze cash flow and understand a balance statement. You know, you're useless. Yeah, this is outside of this industry, but I once asked somebody, and I won't say their name or anything, but 
I said, how's your business doing? And they said, you know, I don't know how to answer that. And I said, what do you mean? Is it good? Is it bad? They said, I have no idea. And I said, okay, I'm confused. Are you making money or losing money? And they said, I have, I don't know how to tell that. So it sounds crazy, but if you, if you can't do math, business probably isn't a good thing for you. <laughs> well, you know, if you can't do it, you got to hire it. There you go. Yeah. You know, I have two bookkeepers and two accountants. Yeah. It is a full-time, I have a standing meeting every Wednesday morning at 10 o'clock with my bookkeeper. Yeah. And additionally, this time of year, I'm talking to her every day. Yeah. And I'm talking to my accountant. And, yeah. you know, we're generating A1s, like you yeah. wouldn't believe. Yeah. The witching season. <laughs> so if you, that's the operationally intense part of the business. If you don't even know what you're supposed to be doing, well, that just, to me, just doesn't even make sense. Yep. You should understand the parts and pieces you need to be spinning on. Yep. And that comes with, you know, time and experience. And I'll say it again, a good mentor helping out. Yep. Well, I like the advice about jump in and, and figure it out because, you know, life's like a, a stream. It's always flowing. And at some point you're going to jump in and get pulled quicker than you're ready and hit obstacles. That's, that's how it works. So jumping in and get involved is a, a step everybody's got to take at some point. At some point, but do it smartly. Yep, I like it. So as you look forward for the rest of 2023, what are you focused on as you continue to grow your business? I am really trying to flesh out a large, I've got hundreds of investors in my database, but I'd legitimately like to triple that. Okay. Um, We're seeing a lot of distressed opportunities right now. So we need, you know, money's what greases the skids. And so we need to figure out a way to raise a lot of money. I'm in the middle of a raise right now. We did really well on this. In uh, six days, we raised $21 million on a deal. Whoa. Wow, that's really good. And uh, we're kind of trying to wrap that up. But the problem is, what do you do on the next one or the one after that? Yeah. And so, you know, you got to give your investors a chance to recharge or you got to keep bringing fresh yep. investors into the fold. So that's kind of what I'm focused on. Gotcha. Very good. For anybody watching or listening, uh, if they're curious to learn about you or your company, how can they get more info about what you're doing now? Yeah, it's easy to get a hold of me. You know, it's I'm in front of this box all day long, so uh, email works best. So it's info at sgreinvestors.com. S-G-R-E is short for Schiller Group Real Equity. You can also use my professional address if you want. It's mark at... Schuler Architecture, S-H-U-L-E-R, architecture.com. They both end up right in front of me here, and um, I generally respond right away. So uh, if you want to call me, you can just pick up the phone, 206-359-0169. My phone's on my hip all day long, and I always answer. Sounds great. All right, Mark, I appreciate you coming on and sharing a bit of your story with us. Yeah, I hope I didn't scare anybody off. Oh, thank you. Okay, thanks. Thank you for listening to this episode of the show. I had a great time making it, and I hope you really enjoyed yourself listening to it. If you want to keep up with all things Real Estate Investor Marketing Stories podcast related, I encourage you strongly to go to reimarketingstories.com and signing up for our podcast newsletter. We will simply keep you up to date with what's going on with the show, new episodes, and things like that. reimarketingstories.com. So hopefully today's episode and the other episodes that you'll listen to will remind you that as a real estate investor, everybody starts at the beginning, okay? Um, Our guest today and the other guests that you will hear on this show 
will share their real story, right? And they'll tell you what worked, what didn't work. And I want you to remember one thing if you remember nothing else today. It's possible for you to, okay? Never stop going and keep following your passion. Finally, today's show has been brought to you by CapitalRaisingAutomations.com. If you're an active capital raiser and you are ready to learn the three areas that are holding you back from raising more capital, I strongly suggest you check out CapitalRaisingAutomations.com. Check out our free 10-minute video there, and you let me know if it doesn't provide you value. I'm sure it will. All right, thanks again for listening to the show this week. Hope to see you next time. Take care.